All right, thank you, Clay. Revelation chapter 4. Let me just say what a blessing it is to share together as believers in God's Word. It is a privilege. Uh, Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, that before we were in Christ, that uh, we didn't, our hearts were not even inclined to the Scriptures. They weren't even inclined to the truth, uh, nor were we willing or able to submit to it. But now, uh, with the Spirit of God in our lives, we, uh, we have a willingness that gravitates toward the Word, and we have an ability to be illumined by the Spirit of God uh, to study His Word. And every time we get together around that, uh, we are thrilled to have the mind of Christ. So it really is a a joy, and a particular joy this morning to jump back into such a rich um, and really a riveting uh, passage, a passage about worship. In uh, John, you remember in John chapter 4, verse uh, 23, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So Christ tells us that God seeks a certain kind of worshiper, uh, one that will worship Him with their whole being through and through and in the truth of the matter or in respect to all that God is, all that God does, and all that God uh, promises. Uh, And in some ways, Revelation chapter 4 is an exposition of John chapter 4 in those verses because it's all about the true worship of God. It's all about pure worship. Uh, It's all about uh, unhindered worship. When you think about what what we do when we worship God and in a way the frustration sometimes that we feel, knowing in one sense that our worship is acceptable to God through Christ, at the same time, we do struggle with distractions, right? We are hindered in many ways in these things. Uh, So, uh, we, we know what it's like to, to struggle with the, the attitude of worship and, and worship that is imperfect. But this text tells us about worship that is perfect in all of its expressions. It's perfect in its attentiveness. It's perfect in its, in its content. Now, for a number of years, the, the church uh, in general, the evangelical church, has been engaged uh, in what has been referred to as the worship wars. <clears throat> Battles fought within churches, sometimes battles fought fought between churches about the expression of worship or worship styles. But for the most part, it's really been about personal opinions, uh, preferences, and passions about what each individual thinks is right about music and worship. And it has been a very divisive issue for a lot of congregations. Uh, Drums or no drums. Choir or praise team, classic hymns or modern choruses, hymnals or projections. These are just some of the the discussions that that go on. And some churches have opted to try and settle that dispute by offering two different kinds of services. So you see a lot of churches around, even in our own community, where you'll have uh, different services offered, some at one time or and then maybe later on a different uh, uh, kind of, uh, if you will, style of, of service, or in some cases, um, you'll see these things even going on at the same time. Uh, there is a, a particular megachurch uh, in the Atlanta area 
and uh, we don't worry with that. I'll come back. That's a, that's a waste. But this is what they say. <clears throat> So-and-so Baptist Church, because I'm not going to tell you which one it is. But this is what they put on their website, that they have a majestic service. That's at 839, 15, 11, 15 in the sanctuary. Or at the very same times, you can go to the modern service in the activity center. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to the modern service if it's not majestic. I, I just think that's a, that's a very, um, that's a strange way to differenti- differentiate between two different worship services. Uh, can you say contemporary, traditional? It's like there's some of those things, and I think people understand what they're trying to communicate. This one, when I saw this, just, just sort of struck me as a little odd because worship, whether it's contemporary or whether it's traditional or whether you have choruses or hymns, should always be majestic. Uh, so just a strange way, I think, to describe those, uh, those distinctions. But, but you know, these, these battles have been going on in the church and the kinds of things that, uh, that people are fussing over. These, these really are not the main issue. The main issue or the main problem, as I see it, is that people are more concerned about the style than they are the substance. That's the issue. Yes, sir. Yeah, in other words, and I think this is what you actually do see. And again, you, you, there, there is a, if you will, there is a, uh, a division, a separation that people feel when you just have two services, and they're both majestic. So there is a, a natural dynamic that people just struggle with going from, a, say, a smaller church as the church is growing and you start an early service or something. Sometimes you just do that out of logistics, right? And you still feel like, I wish we could all sort of be together, um, but then we can add to that by sort of creating these two different uh, styles. And what I think we do is we get, we're, we're, we're putting people in a position to make their choice based on that. It's like we're almost just saying this is the way it is. There's just going to be two groups of people in the church and some like this and some like that. And so we're going to have these two options. The problem is there's actually more than two styles of worship, if you think about it. I mean, it's not, it's not like we've there's only this and that. I mean, it's like, I mean, Mark could, could come up here and describe a, a style <laughs> of worship that might be something like we've never experienced, right? I mean, there's multiple styles, right? And so when you just say we have these two and then pick one, I think you unnecessarily divide the church around those lines. And at the end of the day, you think you're trying to preserve unity because you hear these discussions and you know that the the, the battles, I guess, are taking place, but you don't really solve the problem. Uh, I think you, in some ways, you accentuate those things. So it's really about substance. Music styles uh, can and do change, but biblical truth and the glory of God and the call to worship Him with all of our minds and wills and affections does not. So how do we know what pure and acceptable worship involves? And I think this passage can help us. Uh, a passage... As we said last time, where John is carried off in a new vision of all places into heaven. And so there was an initial vision which begins in chapter 1, verse 10, where John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and runs through the end of chapter 3. That's, that's the first vision. John had that vision and responded to it, as we said, by recording it and writing and sending those letters to those seven churches uh, in, in Asia 
But now John has a new vision and he enters into a new phase of this revelatory experience where he sees not with the physical eye but in prophetic vision a door permitting him entrance into heaven or the very dwelling place of God. Notice there in chapter 4 verse 1, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So John sees a door and hears none other than the voice of Christ inviting him to come up so that he can be shown by Christ what must take place after these things, or to say it another way, to be shown what will transpire in the future, or those things dealing with what God has destined for the future. So he said that this verse is critical to interpreting the book because it introduces a new vision, it introduces a new section and introduces the next major topic, the things which are yet future, prophecies that describe what will happen after the period of the churches has run its course. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So this, this is what happened next. By, by the miraculous work of the Spirit, John enters another ecstatic state and is transported from Patmos to heaven. And what we have for the remainder of the chapter is a scene that takes place in heaven with descriptions and concepts that center around the sovereign majesty of God, Almighty God, in all of His sovereign majesty and power. So we have, we have this way, I, I guess, of thinking um, about... Uh, uh, think, kind of thinking through chapter 4, we have John's invitation to heaven in verse 1, and then John's vision of heaven in verses 2 through 11. And as a part of the vision, we have various elements beginning with the throne in heaven. Okay? Um, let me get to that here. So we have this throne in heaven, the heavenly throne itself, And notice what verse 2, it it says there that John sees a throne was, he says, standing in heaven. So this throne was standing uh, or set, which has the idea of permanence. So this is not a passing throne. It is a forever throne. It is a permanent throne. It is also a throne which was likely a part of the heavenly temple and one that represents power and authority, especially exercised in judgment. And a throne that is of such significance in this chapter that it's referenced 11 times and everything else in the chapter is described in relation to it. So whether it's someone on it or something around it or something before it or something from it or something to it, the throne is sort of the way in which when when this chapter sort of unfolds, everything is sort of related to the throne itself. And so we're going to sort of walk through these things that follow in chapter 4 and what are they and who are they and then what's the relationship sort of to the throne and the one on it. Okay, so what, so what, what are these other things? And the next one that John mentions is the most important and that is the one on the throne. The one on the throne. He is the central figure of chapter 4. And we know, it's, we know it's the Father and not Jesus because the one pictured here is distinguished from the Lamb. We looked at this last week. You see that in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 7. 
in chapter 6, verse 16, and chapter 7, verse 10. So we, we have this distinction between whoever is on the throne and the Lamb, which we know to be as, uh, Jesus Christ. We also know that it's not the Spirit because the, this one on the throne is distinguished from the Spirit in verse 5. And so we'll get to that, uh, this description of the, the Holy Spirit, His role, His function. So this is God the Father, and He is sitting on the throne, exercising His ultimate rule and sovereign control over all that transpires in the book. Now, what more do we learn about the Father in this vision? Verse 3, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So it says here he was like a jasper stone. Jasper um, describes the, uh, the, 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 the light of the first foundation stone and the walls of the Holy Jerusalem. We see that in chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, verse 11, and in verses 18 to 20, it was also the last, we know this from the Old Testament, the last of the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which were mounted in the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus chapter 28 and chapter 39. Uh, we know from Exodus, or excuse me, Ezekiel 28, that when Satan was in the garden of God, his covering included precious stones like jasper. So the question, again, we're just trying to we're t- take words and sort of in our minds, you know, get a grasp of what it what was John seeing I mean what 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 did this look like um, and so one of the questions that comes is is this is this particular stone uh, is it similar to what we refer to as sort of our 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 modern day Jasper which happens to be uh, sort of opaque and dull or is it something else and so most people believe this is not like what we would would be familiar with uh, what we would call jasper. I think the key to identifying what this stone really is comes from the mention of it over in Revelation chapter twenty one, where there it represents um, more of a, a crystalline brightness, sort of a, a watery brightness. Uh, and so this this ancient stone was most likely something that was more translucent. Uh, a translucent rock crystal, uh, more than than like our modern jasper that, like I said, not is is more um, not not you can't see through it. <laughs> it's opaque. So this, uh, some even say, this is more like a diamond. If you want to think of it that way, it has more of the effect of it. It's more diamond-like um, in appearance. So that's one sort of thing we have to consider. And then it says in this verse that. The one upon the throne was also like a sardius stone. Now, the sardius, uh, better known in our day as carnelian, is red. Uh, some refer to it as being blood-colored. Uh, a stone that's also mentioned as part of Satan's covering in the garden. It is the sixth foundation stone of the Holy Jerusalem in Revelation twenty-one nineteen, And the first of the twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel in the breastplate of the high priest. Uh, and with the inclusion of the last... And the first stone from that breastplate, some have suggested that this denotes the idea of all Israel. So you have the Jasper representing Reuben, the first of the tribes, since Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. You have the Sardine stone representing Benjamin, the youngest of the twelve sons of Jacob, together uh, representing the first and the last and including everything in between. That is the whole of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. But most see the reference to 
to these precious stones as a description of brilliant colored lights which radiate from God and his throne. That is to say, it isn't necessary that we find symbolism in each and every element of this vision. It's sufficient to allow this this typical imagery to create the impression of transcendent glory. So I'm just saying, as we go through, this is just an example. I mean, this is one of the first ones we've come across, but you, it's okay to say it could be that, it could be this, but you have to be careful <laughs> because these things are mentioned in, so, in some cases in so many different contexts that you could just pick one. Right and go, well, I think it refers to this thing in the Old Testament. So I say, well, yeah, but it's mentioned over here, and those two contexts are, 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 are have nothing in common except for the mention of that particular thing. So we want to be careful of that, obviously, as we go through. And, I, and again, I, just, I think that when you, when you just think about the appearance of these things and the way that it is they are used in, in Revelation itself, you just get this sense that there's just this overwhelming glorious splendor, this majesty, this power, this, this gleaming glow around the throne of God. In other words, we cannot forget that this passage is mainly about the wonder of God and the absolute rule of God and the sovereign power, authority, and majesty of God. And as John describes the wonder of God the Father, he doesn't, he doesn't sort of trace those physiological details because the God is spirit. The scripture tells us that. Uh, And though God imaged himself by the spirit's power in some visuals, it wasn't important for John to trace some sort of physical design because that would be nearly impossible. So it's sort of like, you'll you'll notice as we go through, you, you find it all through the book of Revelation. It was like that. It was in the appearance of this thing, which the thing that it says is the appearance of is not even really the ultimate thing that it's describing, right? There just seems to be a gap in our understanding about what exactly this thing is. So we, we, we know that God does represent himself in some visual form to mankind as, as a condescension, but here John is in heaven and he sees Almighty God on his throne, and the outline of the specifics, that's not the main issue. And we know that John is struggling to find ways to describe what he sees because he can't do it any other way than using this appearance-type terminology. That is to say, it's, it's the appearance that's the issue, not the specifics. It's the appearance of the throne itself. It's this sort of the whole picture Right, So you have to be careful about going and just picking out every individual part. Again, it's that balance between the details matter, right? And then what's the, we call it sometimes, what's the force of the passage? Because sometimes we can miss the force of the passage by getting too enamored with the details. And yet, sometimes we can't understand the force of the passage without understanding the details. And so you just have to keep those things in mind, as you said, especially a book uh, of this nature. So it's, it's the whole picture. The whole thing to John is shocking. The whole thing is overwhelming. Not only what God reveals about himself here, but also the very idea that God would, in his grace, reveal anything about himself to such unworthy 
mortals. So we have to understand how challenging it was to describe God in all his wonder and majesty. Back centuries before John, Ezekiel saw the same one seated on his chariot throne. If you want to turn over there, Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel 1, because this is one of these, and we'll refer back to Ezekiel in our study a, a number of times, but this is one of those passages that make all of the, all of the artsy people get excited and all the engineers check out mentally. Because they're like, how does that happen? How, how do these wheels inside of wheels? And <laughs> they're thinking through, wait a minute, this isn't lining up. And all the arts are like, whoa, you know. And I'm saying this, in a passage like this, again, you go through this, you can try to parse out every single little detail and try to figure all that out and miss the overall impact of the passage. This is mind-blowing, okay? This is mind-blowing. Ezekiel one twenty-two. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystals spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings." And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with, notice how it says, with the figure, with a figure, with the appearance of a man. So we have a figure that has the appearance of something, but even that's not the actual thing, right, that it's pointing to. So we have a figure with the appearance of a man that I noticed, verse 27, from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. It's like, that's not very helpful. (laughs) It's just the appearance of this and the appearance of that. And it's kind of like that. And boy, I wish you you could have seen it. You know, it's like he just, he's, that's the struggle, Right. Brilliant prisms of blazing colors that refract all over the place. That, um, that, that's Ezekiel's attempt to represent some of the light that came from the vision of God. According to the scriptures, God often appears surrounded by what we might call translucent or stunning colors that have a kind of translucent and see-through effect to them, similar to the way that some precious stones often appear. You see that in Exodus 24.10. There seems to be around God these sort of images of precious things that refract the blazing prisms of light that shine out from him and from his throne. So it's no wonder that here in John's vision, he's, he's really talking about appearance. He's trying to grasp appearance. So we dare not come to this and imagine that John is trying to describe the specifics of God's image or what God, God looks like. That's not the point. The point is that there is, there is a vision 
that John sees, and in his description of that vision, there are these concepts and symbolisms that are familiar to us, and yet not always, in what they convey, specific. We aren't always given an interpretive grid by which to know every detail. But that in itself is a part of the message, right? That we aren't given those things. That is to say, God, we say this, right? We teach this to our, we do a class, I think it's first grade now, um, where we've, and we've done this for years. We teach on the attributes of God. We have a, one of our elementary classes. It's, sometimes it falls when the, in kindergarten, sometimes it's first grade. But we walk through an entire year on the attributes of God with our, with our little ones. And one of those, I love it when those kids come home, and it's like one of the first lessons. God is, how many of you know this? You have had kids go through this, or you've taught this, if you've, some of you, the teachers in there. God is incomprehensible. Right? And just to hear a young, a young a first grader say that is, is entertaining, right? They're trying to get it out. It's one of the most difficult words of all the, all the attributes, and it's one of the first ones that they learn, but it's an important idea, right? We're going we're gonna to tell you and we're going to teach you about the attributes of God, but just, just know God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible, which doesn't mean that God is utterly unknowable, but that none of us can comprehend God exhaustively. That is to say, we will never capture altogether and master in every detail the things of God. Yes, we have a working knowledge of God that is useful and crucial for our lives because God has revealed himself through general and special revelation. But as R.C. Sproul has said, our language about God is built upon analogy. We can say what God is like, but as soon as we equate whatever it is that we use to describe God with his essence, we have committed the error of thinking that the finite has contained the infinite. So it's like we, we can only, in the, in the writers of Scripture, do this. They, they, they describe God using analogy, right? It's, it's like this. It's similar to that. And then we have to be careful that we don't take that thing and say, that is the essence of God. No, it's not. It, it's, just, it's just humans trying to, in words, because, again, we can understand these concepts. If the Lord didn't give us this in language that we can understand, then it would be of no value to us, right? So the Lord gives us these descriptions in concepts that we can understand, and yet we aren't supposed to, to believe by that that we can grasp everything, right? I used to think, this is years ago, it's like when I maybe first became a Christian, that when we, we, we were in God's presence, we would know everything about God, it's like, you know, have you ever had that? You just thought, just assume that when you got in, when you were in heaven, I mean, you were going to have a perfect mind and you were going to know all these. Are you going to know all things and all these answers to your questions? And you were going to know all about God's attributes. And then it dawns on you. Uh, that's impossible. In fact, for forever, forever, you're going to be learning about the perfections of God forever because of this very thing. So John writes... He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And you say, well, well, what is that? It's, again, it's John's attempt in the power of the Spirit to evoke transcendent realities such as God's perfections, to give concepts of, of purity, eternity, uh, spellbinding beauty, majestic power, and he can't describe it except to use concepts that represent translucence and purity and blazing light and lightning and fire and movement. And Ezekiel does the same. 
Now, if there is a symbolic connotation to these stones, the one that makes the most sense to me is that they represent the holiness of God and the justice of God. Because in other apocalyptic visions of divine majesty, we do often find this same mixture of white light or brilliance, the jasper stone, with fire, this fiery deep red sardius stone. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4, it says, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. So there's this idea of purity coupled with this idea of judgment. Together, God's anger, because of His holy nature, reacting in response to the prevailing sinfulness of man, resulting in the judgment that He is about to send upon the earth. But that's not all. Because with this impression of coming judgment, we find this tempering statement. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So this is our next thing, the rainbow around the throne. Brilliant light emanating from the throne that resembled a rainbow of emerald hues. Of course, the rainbow was given as a sign following Noah's flood to remind God of his covenant, never again to destroy all flesh with a flood. You could read about that back in Genesis chapter 9. Ezekiel and Ezekiel 1 saw this same rainbow. We just read about it in verse 28 as the brightness around the throne. And notice it is around the throne implying, uh, you might say, a full circle. So this word for we translate as rainbow can be both what we typically think of. We think of rainbow, we think of a half, right, a semicircle, but... But this is likely speaking about uh, a full circle, or you might even say a halo. Okay, whether that was going this way or this way, I mean, we don't have that kind of detail. But what does this circular rainbow represent? I think it's very possible that this is a reminder, a, a reminder that God's mercy is as great as His majesty. Or as G.V. Carrot explained, it's a reminder that there will be no triumph of God's sovereignty at the expense of His mercy. In other words, catastrophic judgments are coming, unimaginable disasters are coming, but that in no way means that God has forgotten His promise to Noah. Neither, as we'll see, has He forgotten His covenant relationship with Israel. His wrath and judgment will not abrogate that relationship. Remember what God said of the faithful remnant of Israel who feared being swept away in his judgment of the nation back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. It says, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So God is holy, God is a God of wrath, but God is also a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness. And we will see God's grace in proclamations of the gospel, even in the tribulation. Again, as the church is raptured out and Israel is dealt with in that final travail, there will be, there will be people saved in that time. We refer to them as tribulation saints. We know, and we'll get to these passages in chapter 11, there's two witnesses who do a supernatural work. There will be 144,000 Jews who are saved and marked out for God in redemption. Uh, they are witnesses in the tribulation. 
There's also a gospel angel flying in heaven, proclaiming the gospel over the whole earth to those who are under God's judgment. Why? Because God is gracious. Because God is gracious and merciful. So I'm just saying, even, even at this point, it's like, what an amazing preview. Right? It's, like, it's like a preview of, of what's to come, right? I mean, this is just, in, in, in just very, a very um, concise way, in, a, in, a, in just a, a fraction right, of the reality, but, but giving us this, this sense of, of God's perfections, both on the side of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the wrath of God, and also on the side of the love of God and the, and the, and the, and the graciousness of God and the faithfulness of God. So what's next? Well, we have a throne. We have the majestic and the sovereign one on the throne, and we have this rainbow circling the throne, but we have a, a company of worshipers that are, are awestruck, and John once again attempts to describe what he is seeing. And so we have this in the next verse, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now we'll get to the part about what they do down in verses 9 and 10, but who are they? Who are these 24 elders around the throne? And there's a wide range of opinion about that. Uh, Alan Johnson, in his commentary, claims that there are at least uh, sort of recognized, there's 13 different views. <laughs> okay, so some of these things, uh, you know, you're going to have to decide. Again, uh, we're not going to agree on all of these things, but he says there are 13 different views of their identity. Of course, some of them are fairly far-fetched. I mean, there, there are some of them that you just immediately say, well, that's just not possible. You know, you just kind of run through those, and then you kind of boil these things down, and there's really two main views that I think are worth us considering, and, and the two main views sort of kind of group some of these things together. There's the idea that these are either human beings, in this case men because of the masculine form of the word, or they are spiritual beings, angels, angelic beings of some kind, and there are good uh, arguments for both of them. Uh, On the one side, as far as thinking about these worshipers as being men, there are some some key things to consider. First, you have the the very term elder, uh, which is a title that is typically associated with leaders who are called elders or overseers in that sense, in the church and, and even referred to in, in the Old Testament. They have elders, uh, the elders of, of Israel, those leaders in Israel. And in those cases, the term is used to describe human beings. Uh, some say it must be men because they are wearing white garments, which are usually associated with the redeemed people of God. And you could go back to the letters, uh, the, the, the seven letters, and see references to that. Uh, Of course, the weakness in that argument is that there is nothing explicitly in this text that demands that we see saints in white clothing in this particular verse. Uh, The Gospels often record the fact that angels at times were seen wearing white garments. In fact, this is recorded for us even by the Apostle John himself in John chapter 20, verse 12. 
Others point out the, the golden crowns, right? The Stephanos, this is the, 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 the victor's wreath. Uh, in this case, golden crowns, and they say that this is a sign that these are men who have been redeemed and therefore received crowns mentioned in Scripture, such as the crown of life or the crown of righteousness, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Paul mentions uh, the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. However, in some texts, even in this particular prophecy, crowns can simply indicate royal, uh, royalty or regal authority. So we typically, when we hear crowns, we usually gravitate to the idea of rewards, all right? But that's not the only way in which crowns are used. So in this uh, Revelation 9, verse 7, it says there, "...the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men." Without getting into the, the meaning of that verse, we can at least note that crowns are not always reserved for redeemed people. That's not describing redeemed people, and yet it said they had crowns, right? Golden crowns. So that, I'm just saying you, it's easy to just go from that text and to just find a place where these things are mentioned and say that has to be it. And that's not, that's not always true. Um, it's also worth mentioning that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, Christ himself is pictured with a golden crown on his head, but no one would say that Christ is among the redeemed. Right? He, he, Christ has not been redeemed. Uh, he is the redeemer. And to add to that, and you could turn there if you want to, Revelation chapter 7, verse 13, says in Revelation 7, 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So you have here one elder from among the group of elders distinguishing himself from those who have been redeemed in a way setting himself apart maybe as an angelic being who is giving revelation about the redeemed. It's also true that these elders do not know or could not learn the, the new song sung by the 144,000. We'll get to that um, later in, in Revelation. Moreover, in Revelation 19, there seems to be a distinction between the elders and the bride made ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So some, some of these other passages give us the impression, or in some cases expressly state, that these elders are a separate category from the redeemed people. It's just not that clear, it's just not that definitive that the 24 elders represent men, or as some would suggest, the church. Uh, even in light of passages like Matthew 19.28. So what was, what's, what's the other viable option? And the other option is that these are angelic beings, angelic beings, spiritual beings, supernatural beings. Colossians 1 uh, verse 15, speaking of Christ, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So by and large, most people agree that what Paul is referring to in that verse are various categories of angels whom Christ created and rules over because false teachers had incorporated into their heresy 
the worship of angels and also claimed that Jesus was one of them, merely a spirit created by God and inferior to God. So Paul makes reference to this catalog of angelic ranks in order to show the superiority of Christ over being what the false teachers might suggest, that, that he's one of them. No, Paul says, no, he created them all. Of course, we've already pointed out that angels can have white garments, they can have golden crowns, and even though some who disagree with the angel view like to highlight the fact that in Revelation 5, this group of elders... Um, sing the song of the redeemed. You'll notice there in Revelation 5, 8, says that the, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And that is true. And some would say that angels wouldn't do that. They wouldn't sing the song of redemption, and therefore it must be men. But notice, it's not just the 24 elders who do this. Verse 8 says, the first part of that verse, it's also the four living creatures who are undoubtedly not men. So that presents a problem. So who are they? Well... You can go and look at all 13 views if you want to. <laughs> you can just grab some commentaries and go because i got a bunch of them and I mean, it's all over the map. You're going to have to weigh all those things for yourself and decide, but I believe that they are a unique class of angelic beings, a particular group of supernatural beings which are called here elders. And their task is to worship in a distinct way to demonstrate what worship is like in the glorious surroundings of the throne. In fact, the elders always appear with angels in the book of Revelation. And since angels are always delivering revelation, you even have in chapter 5, verse 5, one of the elders giving revelation. Notice there, chapter 5, verse 5, John, John begins to weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book or the scroll and its seals. So, so again, you'll, you'll, have to work, you'll have to work through that. Are these men? Some faithful and godly people think so. But I personally think this is a special group of supernatural beings made for worship around the throne to demonstrate what worship is like in all of its purity. Spirit beings made to reveal things about God for the sake of worship and quite possibly to oversee worship around the throne. And that may be why John uses the term elder not in the sense that we think of it, which is we, we tend to, again, think of that term and think age, right? That somehow these things are aging, but that can the term elder can simply be a title for someone who is ruling, right, Who's, who has authority. So it may very well be that they oversee this worship around the throne of God. Some would say angelic nobles, and they, and they themselves are always worshiping. 
They have very specific tasks. They, they've been assigned some thrones to demonstrate that they are vice regents in authority under Christ for that task. And they're about that task. They're faithful in their service. They are clothed in white garments, which, which speaks of the purity of their worship. And they have golden crowns on their heads representing the regal majesty of their position because they are there for a purpose. And that purpose is to teach what God deserves in worship. And they do it all the time around His throne. It's it's ceaseless praise. And they have a distinct way about their worship, a distinct practice, if you will, in their worship. Drop down there to verse 9. Again, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. And so they have a distinct practice in their worship. And the first element that we notice about their worship is that their, their, um, uh, their, their worship manifests honor and submission to God and to the Lamb, right? Because these, these, these golden crowns, right, they, they bow down and they lay their crowns before God. Those golden crowns that demonstrate their majestic position, that position that they've been placed in by God Himself, they lay down those things before the one who sits on the throne and they begin to speak and to say that He is worthy. You jump down to chapter 5, verse 8. Again, once the Lamb has taken the book, they do what? They fall down before the Lamb. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. Verse 14, and the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. You think about those verses. What do they say about that distinct practice? Well, one of the things that it teaches us about worship, pure worship, is that worship, true worship, acceptable worship, manifests this, this aspect of honor and submission to God and to Christ. So they're falling down before the throne. They're casting crowns before the throne. They're ascribing majesty to God by those actions and by their proclamations. And when it comes to redemption and Christworthiness, they fall down before Him in order to manifest that same honor and that same submission. Worship then in its purest form begins with the manifestation of honor and submission. Think about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about about the rebellion of mankind. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. That is the opposite of pure worship. Self-will and autonomy and a refusal to honor God or express gratitude for the perfections of God and and the limitations that God chooses to put in place, and the promises that God makes to take care of His own and to judge every act of rebellion. And what you have here in this vision of heaven are 24 elders falling down before the throne to demonstrate that they will never do that. They're never going to do that. They're never going to dishonor God. They're never going to fail to give thanks. They will never question the authority and sovereignty of God. They will never breach a barrier that God sets. They will never challenge God's goodness or His integrity. They will never demand greater signs of God's faithfulness, but always believe that He is faithful. 
For to worship God is to honor Him and submit to Him, and anything less is to go back to the fall where true worship was turned on its head. Now, what else do we learn? We also learn that they worshiped with their whole person. It says that they sang a new song. That is to say that they were in touch with redemption. They had watched God's people. They, like the angels mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, longed to look in, in or to gain a clear glimpse of it. They were supernatural beings created by God to worship Him, and they longed to see God's people become a company of priests to serve Him. They were fully in touch with the redemption of God's people. They were attentive to that. They were committed to it, fully engaged. Their whole being is worshiping God. And when a new song comes up as as redemption unfolds, it is right there on their lips because they are fully consumed with what God is doing and praising Him for it. So why does our worship suffer in the way that it does? Because we're not in tune with those things. We're not in tune with redemption. We're not consumed with what God is doing. We're we're caught up in thinking about our own disappointments and how things didn't turn out the way that we wanted. We, We get focused on temporal things. We don't think about the unfolding of God's plan and the glories of His grace and wisdom and His perfect timing. But if everything else was stripped away from us, our church, our families, our health, our freedom, our material comforts, and all we had left was our redemption, wouldn't that be enough? It would be if we truly knew what it meant to worship God in spirit or to worship Him with our whole being, our whole person. And when we see these 24 elders singing a new song, we are reminded of that. And then finally, we learn about pure, that pure worship, that in that they worshiped in truth. Chapter 4, verse 11 says, Listen to what they say. We'll come back to some of these things next time. You created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Chapter 5, verse 5, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, more truth. Chapter 5, verse 12, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom, might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. That is to say the content matters. The content matters. And what is the substance of that? The hollowing of God's name, the worthiness of he who is is on the throne and the worthiness of Christ, the fact that God deserves to take the honor and the glory and the power for his, his act of creation and his sustaining providence, the fact that Christ the Lamb deserves to seize the glory and honor for himself, for his humiliation and his work of redemption, to get the praise that is due him. Listen, that, that, is what, that is what visitors to our church service this morning should be struck with. A sense that we as the people of God are eager to show Him honor and submit to His will. A sense that we are worshiping God with our entire being. And a sense that God and Christ are the focus and that they have a right to do as they please and to take all the credit and the glory for it. This is not about our petty differences. All these worship wars, right? That's not what this is about. It's not about those differences. It's not about our petty preferences. It's not about changing styles. It's not about building our egos. This is about a profound majesty and a pure worship. And if we could understand that, it would change the way that we live and serve and worship. And it would strike a blow to our hypocrisy. When we come here to gather with the redeemed and to live praises to God, but, but all week long we fail to deal with our sin, 
we come in so many times to, to, to gather is, is the people of God full of, of self-pity, not trusting God, complaining about our trials. We do that all week long, and then we, we come here and we move our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. That wouldn't happen as often if we understood and applied this text. It's not as if God can't use our time of worship as a, as a, as a, as a way to, to break us, but it sure would be nice if we prepared ahead of time so that we could enter into it with a clean conscience and joyful anticipation. Honoring Christ, submitting to Christ, worshiping Christ with all of our being, recounting God's ways, ascribing to Him worth because of His power and grace, and living as if He is worthy. And in that sense, heaven ought to come down. That is what visitors should notice. (laughs) They shouldn't be distracted by all those things. They should be gripped by the fact that we are a people that want to honor God and submit to God. We We are a group of people that want to... It rid ourselves of hypocrisy, to rid ourselves of the gap between the way we live during the week and the, what we do when we come together corporately, to worship in spirit and in truth. That, that is what visitors should notice, that God is supreme, that we have a task, that we are fully engaged in it, that truth matters, and that we have a conviction that the highest form of worship isn't some kind of emotional euphoria. It is submission to Christ and His Word. If you think that the pinnacle of worship is some sort of emotional euphoria, good luck, right? I don't always feel that way, and people are chasing that, and that's why they get so frustrated, right? That's not what this is about. The highest form of worship is submission to Christ, to be conformed to Christ. That is what makes a pure worshiper. That is what makes a pure worshiper. All right, we'll stop there for today, and we'll pick up next week. We've got some, some other things to, to look at, some things going on around the throne of God, and then we've got this, uh, these four living creatures <laughs> Try to figure out who they are, right? And so, again, I just encourage you to, to study these things out. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not get it right in, in many ways, and, and you're not going to get it right in many ways, but... I think the one thing we want to be careful of is, is again, being so focused on, on, on the connection sometimes between the symbols and the images to, to those, the details uh, in other places in Scripture when things aren't necessarily that clear. And in the process of doing that, we miss the point of the passage. We miss the force of the passage. And so we'll come back and we'll, we will get in, cover the details, but then we'll try to, again, step back and make some some applications. So we'll pick up there uh, next week with verse 5, unless he comes, right? Unless he comes, uh, we will be there. Uh, let me just remind you again, a conference, counseling conference is uh, today's last day to register for that. So I've seen a lot of people jumping on board this week, uh, but just uh, don't let that slip by if you're planning to attend. All right, folks, thank you for your time.